Welcome back to the Peed Space. Palette Life Sciences, sponsor of this podcast, is committed to bringing educational tools such as the Peed Space for sharing best practices and compelling conversations across a wide variety of pediatric urology and VUR topics. The content of today's episode is solely the opinion of Dr. Tony Corey, board-certified pediatric urologist at Children's Hospital Orange County and professor of urology at the University of California, Irvine. In this episode, Dr. Corey will explain the importance of individualizing treatment for vesicourethral reflux using a risk stratification model. Dr. Corey will also present the evolution of VUR management and physician learnings across the years. And now, here is Dr. Corey. In this podcast, I will discuss our approach at the Children's Hospital of Orange County and the University of California in Irvine for tailoring the management of vesicoureteric reflux based on an individualized risk for recurrent urinary tract infections and progression. In the 1990s, during my fellowship training and my early years at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, managing reflux was fairly straightforward. Back then, each child received a voiding cystourethrogram after their first infection. They were all placed on prophylactic antibiotics and had a repeat VCUG every 12 to 18 months. Surgery was indicated if the child had breakthrough infections or if reflux had not resolved within four years of follow-up or if the family was not compliant with prophylaxis or, of course, if renal scars appeared on treatment. However, several important points have led to evolution of our management of reflux. Over the years, we learned that 50% of the children who develop pyelonephritis do not have reflux. In the first world, the majority of parenchymal changes are developmental rather than and acquired scars. We also learned that the incidence of reflux-related renal failure has been stable over the past 60 years, despite aggressive medical or surgical management of reflux. So rather than focus on reflux resolution or correction as the ultimate endpoint for managing reflux, the goalposts have really shifted so that now prevention of the morbidity of urinary tract infections, sepsis, and subsequent renal injury have become our primary objectives. In this process, we realized that reflux is a spectrum condition and the likelihood of it causing renal injury depends on a multitude of factors that need to be considered in every child. These factors include whether reflux was diagnosed after a febrile UTI or was the child screened for it because of prenatally diagnosed hydronephrosis. How many of these febrile infections has the child suffered? What grade of reflux is present? The presence of significant parenchymal changes, the age, sex, and race of the child, and in males, whether they are circumcised or not. And finally, a key consideration is the presence or absence of bladder and bowel dysfunction, or BBD for short. Let's spend a few moments looking at the role of BBD in children with reflux and recurrent infections. Back in the early 2000s, our policy in Toronto was to stop prophylactic antibiotics once children were toilet trained. In a publication in the Journal of Urology in September 2010, we reviewed the outcome of prophylaxis discontinuation in children with persistent reflux. We found that approximately 20% of these children developed a UTI over the subsequent three to four years of follow-up. 95% of these infections occurred in children with dilating reflux and rarely in children with persistent grade one to two reflux. A striking difference was also observed when we evaluated children who continued to have BBD after discontinuation of their antibiotics with almost 50% of these children having an infection compared to 5% of the children 
without BBD, regardless of grade of reflux. We observed similar findings when we completed the meta-analysis for the AOA guidelines on management of reflux, which were published in 2010. The key points to remember are that BBD is associated with more infections on prophylaxis, less reflux resolution at 24 months, lower success rate for endoscopic correction of reflux, but not for open surgery. We also found that the recurrence rate of reflux after successful endoscopic therapy was higher in children with persistent BBD. These children also had an increased incidence of infections despite successful correction of reflux. In infant males, non-retractable foreskin is another important factor in the determination of who will develop UTIs. In a study presented at the American Urological Association meeting in 2019 by our group at the Children's Hospital of Orange County and the University of California in Irvine, we reported on 84 boys under one year of age with primary reflux who presented between 2014 and 2018. 14 of those boys were circumcised and 70 were uncircumcised. They were all followed prospectively for two years. Phimosis was graded from 0 to 5. In grades 0, 1, and 2, the foreskin can be retracted with the glands almost completely exposed. In grade 3, only the meatus could be exposed, whereas in grades 4 and 5, the glands could not be visualized. The findings of the study were very interesting in that circumcised boys and children with grade 1 and 2 phimosis had no urinary tract infections, whereas children with grade 3 phimosis had a UTI rate of 14%, and children with grades 4 and 5 phimosis had an infection rate of 36%. This study taught us that circumcision or managing a tight foreskin with steroid cream and retraction significantly reduce a male infant's risk of developing an infection. Now let us move into the contentious issue of continuous antibiotic prophylaxis. In the last 15 years or so, there has been a number of published articles that debated the benefits or lack thereof of continuous prophylactic antibiotics in children with reflux. You could argue that many of these studies were under powered, that there were issues with inclusion criteria or the type of prophylactic agent or randomization. However, because of the lack of concrete evidence supporting the benefit of continuous prophylaxis in reducing recurrent UTIs or renal scarring, the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2011 published their guidelines on urinary tract infections in infants and children, in which they recommended against obtaining VCOGs after the first UTI if the ultrasound was normal. The point being, why diagnose reflux when making that diagnosis will not affect the nature of treatment? In an attempt to resolve the issue regarding the benefit of antibiotic prophylaxis in children with reflux, the NIH funded the RIVER trial to the tune of $6 million. 607 children aged 2 to 71 months of age diagnosed with grades 1 to 4 reflux after a first or second febrile or symptomatic infection were randomized to receive either trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, or a placebo. These children were followed for two years in 19 sites across the United States. The primary outcome of the study was the efficacy of trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole prophylaxis in preventing recurrences, and the secondary outcomes included renal scarring, treatment failure, and the emergence of antimicrobial resistance. 13% of the children receiving prophylactic antibiotics developed UTIs 
during the two years of follow-up compared to 25% in the group on placebo. This difference was statistically significant. On the other hand, the incidence of renal scarring on the outcome scans between both groups was not different. 12% for the prophylaxis group compared to 10% in the placebo group. There was also no difference in the severity of renal scarring or new scar formation from baseline between the two groups. There were important effect modifiers though. Children with grade 3 or 4 reflux at baseline were more likely to have febrile or symptomatic recurrences compared to those presenting with grade 1 or 2 reflux. Also, children who had a febrile index infection were more likely to have recurrent infections. And of course, the presence of BBD made a significant difference. The River trial authors concluded that prophylactic antibiotics significantly reduced the risk of recurrent infections by 50%, from 25% to 13%, but not of renal scarring. As a result, they suggested that the American Academy of Pediatrics reconsider their guidelines of not recommending prophylactic antibiotics or obtaining a VCUG after the first UTI. However, from the American Academy of Pediatrics standpoint, one could argue that prophylaxis did not reduce the incidence of renal scarring or subsequent chronic kidney disease. And although prophylaxis resulted in a modest reduction in UTI rate from 25% to 13%, the number needed to treat was 8. And although the result of the study was statistically significant, is it truly clinically significant? The River trial also demonstrated that the likelihood of resistant organisms causing infections is higher in the prophylaxis group. One also has to wonder if the results with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole would cross over to other antibiotics, or would we have even seen better outcomes with a different agent such as nitrofurantoin in view of the high incidence of resistant organisms in many communities to trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. With this background, we constructed a categorical risk stratification model based on all the factors I discussed earlier to determine which patients are at higher risk for recurrent infections and who would benefit from prophylactic antibiotics or correction of their reflux. We included age, sex, race, circumcision status, laterality, grade of reflux, BBD, parenchymal changes, and the number of febrile UTIs prior to diagnosis in a group of children that were followed for at least two years. 75% of the patients were female and their median age at diagnosis was nine months. We categorized patients as low risk if they had grades 1 to 3 reflux without BBD and circumcised males. 67% of our patients fell in this group and their infection rate was only 8%. The intermediate risk group included patients with grades 1 to 3 reflux and bladder and bowel dysfunction. The uncircumcised males and females with grades 4 and 5 reflux who are diagnosed after screening for prenatal hydroerythronephrosis. 27% of the population fell in this group and their risk for infection was also 27%. The high-risk group included grades 4 and 5 reflux in females who are diagnosed following a UTI. Only 6% of the patient population fell in this group. However, the recurrent infection rate was 62%. So, 
to summarize, two-thirds of the patients were in the low-risk category, and we managed those without prophylactic antibiotics since their infection rate was only 8%, and they were followed with periodic ultrasounds. The intermediate risk group comprised about 25% of the patient population, and their infection rate was also about 25%, so they were placed on prophylactic antibiotics and were managed also with periodic ultrasounds without having to repeat their VCOG unless they had a breakthrough infection and we were contemplating a change in management. The small percentage of patients, approximately 5%, that fell in the high-risk category were managed on prophylactic antibiotics until they were older than one year of age. And at that point, if a follow-up VCUG demonstrated persistence of high-grade reflux, they were offered correction of their reflux. We were curious to know if our risk stratification model could be applied to the river trial patients to determine if we could identify a subgroup of that population that would have benefited more from prophylaxis in order to decrease the number needed to treat from eight. We wrote a proposal requesting the raw data from the NIDDK, and after the committee reviewed our proposal, we were given access to the raw data of the 607 children enrolled in the river trial. As the river trial did not include any children with grade 5 reflux and only a small number of patients with grade 4 reflux, we decided to divide the patients into two categories only, low and high risk. The low risk category included circumcised males and females with grades 1 to 3 reflux without BBD. The high risk patients included uncircumcised males with grade 1 to 3 reflux with or without BBD or females with grades 1 to 3 reflux and BBD. All patients with grade 4 whether they had BBD or not, were placed in the high-risk category. Two-thirds of the patients in both the placebo and the prophylaxis arm fell in the low-risk category, and one-third in the high-risk group. The demographics were similar between the two groups. The findings of this analysis were very striking. In the low-risk category, the rates of recurrent infections were 19% in the placebo group, compared to 14% in the prophylaxis group. This was not statistically significant. As I mentioned, this group comprised two-thirds of the study population. And so almost 400 of the 600 patients did not benefit from being on prophylaxis. You could argue that the study was not powered enough to find the difference in the low-risk population. However, I do not foresee us being able to fund or design a large enough trial to find such a difference. And even if we were able to, would it really be clinically significant? On the other hand, the one-third of the patients that fell in the high-risk category clearly benefited from being on prophylactic antibiotics. The UTI rate in the placebo group was almost 32% compared to 11.4% in the prophylaxis group. This was statistically significant and dropped the number needed to treat to five. Over the past five years, we have managed all children in our practice prospectively using the same risk stratification model. And similarly, we have found that the children in the low risk category in our practice who are managed without prophylactic antibiotics had a UTI rate of 11% over a minimum of two years of follow-up, whereas those in the intermediate risk group had an infection rate of 
23% and in the high-risk group, it was up to 52%. In a sub-analysis of these patients, we again confirmed that there were no infections in the circumcised males and 25% of the uncircumcised males developed an infection. 32% of those with BBD had a UTI compared to 14% when BBD was absent. Additionally, grade of reflux was important and children with grade 4 and 5 reflux had a UTI rate of 41% on follow-up compared to 16% in those with grades 1 to 3 reflux. All these results were statistically significant. So to summarize, using this risk stratification model, we can identify children that are at high risk for recurrent infections who would benefit from being on prophylactic antibiotics. And we clearly identify two-thirds of the children who present with reflux that fall in the low-risk category and do not need to be on prophylaxis. As clinicians, we are always looking for tools that would help us identify patients that are at higher risk, that require more invasive studies and more aggressive management of their condition. And using this risk-based approach offers us this opportunity. Finally, I would like us to remember some of the uh, key points in this podcast. Reflux is a spectrum and our job as clinicians is to individualize investigations and management for this condition based on the child's risk for recurrent infections. In this context, it is important to remember that prophylaxis is probably beneficial in only 25 to 33% of the reflux population and that managing bladder and bowel dysfunction and phymotic foreskin is critically important. If the child is doing well with no further infections, there really is no reason to repeat invasive studies such as the voiding cystiurethrogram unless one is contemplating a change in management because of the occurrence of recurrent infections. Over the past 10 years, we have published several manuscripts detailing this risk stratification model and our analysis of the river trial data. I would welcome any questions or suggestions for future studies and would like to thank you very much for your attention. Thanks for joining us this week on the PEED space. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Corey's perspective. Feel free to share with your colleagues while we deliver more pediatric urology-focused content in the coming weeks. There are some great resources for you and your patients at deflux.com. Additionally, you can learn more about our company and our products at palatelifesciences.com.